0: Hey, what's up? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to episode 51 of the YC podcast. So before we get going, I just want to say thanks to all of you for checking it out. We passed a million downloads a while back, and that's pretty cool. And an extra special thanks to anyone that's reviewed it on iTunes, because that's super helpful for us. So today's episode is with Kevin Slavin. Kevin is the chief science and technology officer for The Shed. The Shed is an art center in New York, and they're opening in 2019. Before the shed, Kevin founded the Playful Systems Group at MIT's Media Lab, and he also gave a TED Talk in 2011 called How Algorithms Shape Our World. So that talk's been viewed over 3 million times, and I'll link it up in the show notes. All right, here we go. There were a couple questions from the internet, Mm -hmm. um, but I figure we could... um, just start with kind of what we were talking before about education in general. Sure. So as, as you're a dad now mm-hmm. and yeah. you're thinking about education having yeah. now, you know, been at Cooper Union, yeah. now on the board at Cooper Union, yeah. been at the Media Lab, and now kind of the shed interacts with that, you know, education and art in the kind of cultural way and yeah. that its value. Yeah. How do you think about higher education um, for your, your kids in 20 years?
1: Yeah. So... Yeah, we have 16 years before my daughter is released from the American high school system <laughs> into, you know, who knows what, uh, really. Um, and um, I think that um, there are, I, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but there, it's basically 15 universities a year that go bankrupt in the United States. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is that Maybe it's just simply um, the model as they have constructed it and are um, uh, sort of buttressing it to keep it exactly as it has been maybe that's maybe that's no more appropriate for education than it is for many other things in our lives hmm. you know um, uh, you know it's you know it's arguably easier to change the the sensibility of a city uh than of than of a of of a university because uh cities people leave uh and universities (laughs) uh the 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 people who really uh determine the the core sensibility of it are tenured which there's there are very good reasons for tenure and it it arose under McCarthyism to protect free thought essentially which is great um but um if you if you look at the downstream effects of protecting free thought such that then only the people who got caught in that particular net are preserved and the question is what are the what are the what are the downstream effects for everybody else mm-hmm. uh, uh within that and how do you how do you search for that the bottom line is is that i think academic institution the bottom line is that i think academic institutions and cultural institutions have this thing in common which is that what they what they provide you with is um a sense of continuity between Mm -hmm. you and some larger set of people and ideas Mm -hmm. Um, we if you if you didn't have cultural institutions and you didn't have schools in the contemporary united states there's not there's not that many things that are accessible to most people. Um, there's a lot of abandoned churches. Um, we don't work in factories or offices the way we used to. So there's not the same sense of community there. Um, so I think, uh, the, the role of these, of institutions, whether it's the shed or Cooper union or MIT or, or whatever. Um, I think what they provide is um uh some you it it is for the thing that they do is they they force you to acknowledge that you are not an individual um (laughs) uh, that you that you exist uh in some broader context Hmm. um that hopefully you're helping to shape um uh and hopefully is a is a positive context, right? I
0: mean, it's not dissimilar to YC. We were talking about this <laughs> yeah, before,
1: yeah. but I think that that
0: batch structure, yeah. even though they're so close together, you yeah. know, it's like three yeah. months apart between yeah. the winter and the summer yeah, yeah, batch, yeah, yeah. but still, you're like, you know, I'm winter 17, you're summer 17. Right. Like, we're in the same alumni cohort, right. and that's awesome, right? But I'm still summer 17, and like, right. I'm tight with people in that way.
1: It. I was thinking about it just yesterday because I, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking, wow, you know, like, I have two friends who've never even met each other, who just got MacArthur grants. And I have another friend who just released some beautiful, beautiful work, like, uh, the, um, uh, uh, Frank Lance, who just did the, the paperclip game that is oh, so really? right now. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, some amazing work from Usman Hawk. And, and I, I was just thinking what, you know, like I, I, it's not that it's not that I'm in all of their work, uh, at, at all. It's their work. Um, but all of their work is in me. Like I, like, like th- you know, through my friendships and relationships with them, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, that, that is, that's what makes me who I am. I have, yeah. I have no illusions of, uh, uh, that, that the ideas that I have or the capabilities that I have or, the, or the, or the knowledge that I have comes from me. <laughs> and hard work. It, it comes from, it comes from being connected and embedded with, an amazing group of people, mm. um, like, and is like, that
0: through Cooper Union? Or? It's through it's through Just everything. Life. I've
1: had a I've had a really really peripatetic journey <laughs> okay. uh, in my life, and so uh, I it's possible that I've crossed through more industries and disciplines and so on than than on average we don't um, normally talk yeah. about this but yeah. i actually
0: think folks would be interested in you giving a little <laughs> bit of the back like <laughs> sure. connect, connect the dots in
1: the um yeah in the yeah. five well, minute I mean, you version know, the 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 usually in meetings that i'm in you know it's like if you know I, I had a meeting yesterday with uh the cisco hyperlocation crew and you know and we're talking about how to do indoor positioning systems and okay. you know and i was and i was talking about signal attenuation through steel versus concrete and this and that and and at a certain point the guy from cisco uh said you know like you you know a lot about this so what uh, what, what did you study and and this is always the punchline this is it's sculpture i studied sculpture <laughs> like and that's and that's actually the only thing that i ever went to school for was sculpture wow um and everything else uh are things that i have been sufficiently interested in motivated by and or capable of attracting and engaging with people who are brilliant in other disciplines. Hmm. Um, So, you know, I'm working on, I'm working on a project. This is the last project that I have with MIT that I can't exactly, I can't talk about what it is, but it's, um, it's, uh, uh, I'll just say it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very large scale artwork Uh, that is, uh, that's using, that's using CRISPR. Um, And, you know, I I know fuck all uh, (laughs) about how to get that done. I now know just a little bit, but what I, what I do know is I know how to work with people who are really good at their Mm. craft. And I know, uh, I know how to connect them and I know how to draw out their best work i think i would i would say that i would say that I'm, I'm good at drawing out the best work out of people is that an innate quality or is that something you've cultivated i don't know i think i think i i think at a certain point i became aware that that's one of the only things that i'm good at <laughs> uh and so now i now i i it, now it's very deliberate um, but i but i think i think you know i think it comes from from really uh valuing what other people do you know Mm. like i you know i worked for years with with uh with frank lance when we had a company called area code where we i mean we i can say like we legitimately pioneered some of the earliest uh examples and 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 actual products etc in location-based games like you know when nobody knew what that meant you know Mm. when you still had to pull you know, cell site signals off of towers, right? When when we had to negotiate cool. with carriers for for location data, right? You know, we were doing all that. But the thing is, is, is that Frank was basically my favorite game designer, right? Yeah, and okay. and I think it comes from really valuing that and like not like it's you know it's not trying to. There's a difference between managing people and actually drawing things out Mm. you know and i and i and i think i think learning how to learning how to learning what brilliant people there's an art to getting brilliant people to surprise themselves Um, and that is um that's what i that's what i try to do that's what i have tried to do in most uh, all of my endeavors and is that because i mean i've worked on handful
0: of projects with people i think are absolutely brilliant yeah, amazing yeah. and more often than not it's because i'm like hey i i have this particular skill set you have this particular yeah, yeah, skill set yeah, yeah. i think you're amazing yeah. and you know so part of like the the sales process right. or the meeting it's yeah. like i'm just kind of fawning over you yeah
1: it's like yeah, you're, yeah, yeah this yeah, is super yeah, cool yeah, sure, and yeah. i can't do it yeah
0: um what did you provide in that relationship because i think certain people who yeah. who feel like they can spot talented people also feel a little inadequate and a little like an imposter and they don't know how to add value
1: yeah that's a that's a good question i think there's a couple things that i bring to it one is one is i usually bring the beginning of an idea uh or often i bring the beginning of an idea um so you know for example this this project i can't describe uh um is Uh, You know, I I had an idea that I couldn't even begin to articulate. Hmm. And I brought that to a pretty hardcore computational biologist that I know. And she turned it into a much richer idea. And then, but it was also beyond her ability to do it. But then you know it's like but then it kind of snowballs right then it's me and her mm-hmm. and we go and find the floral geneticist uh <laughs> who can really pull it off yeah. uh and then so that's part of it is is you kind of snowball like you, you kind of like you find the person who can add that much to it and then the person who can add that much and then so each time you meet somebody you're bigger uh, and it's <laughs> richer um and i think the other thing that uh that i've been good at is is that i can i'm very good i think at demonstrating the value of whatever it is we're doing to uh somebody who has some money to pay for it yeah just bottom line um and that you know i think i think people who are really really good at whatever they do are often not in a good position to be able to do that because it requires um a level a certain level of detachment from what you care about to be able to look at it from somebody else's point of view Mm -hmm. uh and to be able to tell a story about it that isn't the story that you tell yourself necessarily Hmm. it's a true story it's just not the story that you tell yourself um and um you know uh, in my travels i among other things i spent eight years in advertising um and i learned i learned a lot about how to how to tell a story um and i learned a lot about how uh how how ideas can provide value Hmm. basically so now did you fundraise for area code no we just frank and i just bootstrapped we just we totally did that it was it was just two dudes in a room with some savings okay and you know we were anomalous we were you know i think i must have been I, I I guess I was like 35. Frank was probably maybe 38 or so, right? Yeah. Like you know, so like totally anomalous. But it meant that we had some saving, you know, we had the savings that mid 30s people might have. Um, so we were able to, to 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 kind of like deal with it. Well, because um, the yeah. the question I was wondering yeah. is um,
0: if you had raised on the the entrepreneurial side, yeah. uh, much you know VC yeah. standard yeah. Um, versus you know raising at MIT. Yeah. Or are you involved at the shed now fundraising? I am okay yeah, I am so yeah how how does a story differ when you're trying to you know pitch a different product?
1: People might argue with this and i don't I don't even know if I believe what I'm saying, but I think <laughs> probably I would say that the that the essential story that you have to tell when you're fundraising is a story of scale right like like because the premise of fundraising is is that the money is going to scale mm-hmm. and that means something else has to scale to produce that scale right and that and so that's that's just the bottom line right is is that is is that you're telling a story of growth and the best the reason that area code grew mm-hmm. and we grew to roughly 40 people by the time it was acquired in mm-hmm. 2011 the reason it was able to grow is is that that just we weren't we weren't trying to we that we just it just was not it wasn't a priority we 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 were just trying to do the best work we could do Mm -hmm. um and um and we would just grow as we had to and if we'd had to think about growth from the very beginning man we would never (laughs) have done anything we did you know we would you know we would have bet it all on on this idea that we had in 2004 that we we went and talked to uh to the nintendo corporation we had this idea for pokemon we probably would have bet it all on that right, right? and okay. what a mistake that would have been yeah you know, right, right yeah, of course right so what ended up yeah, being the yeah. big success of area code um area code so for, in terms of the the things that we did there were a lot of there were a lot of like little successes okay. um like you know and you know we were area code was this very unusual beast and I, and they're very i don't I don't think there's been many like it before. Or after which is that normally, if you want to make money in games, if you even want to make a living in games, you say like, "I'm going to build a shop that's optimized for, uh, you know, AAA console development." Yep. You know, which has nothing to do with the shop that you would build if you were doing like, you know, iOS development. You know, whatever, because. The level of engineering and, and, and expertise, et cetera, is so intense Mm -hmm. for existing platforms. If you think back to when we started 2004, everything was just fucked up. Like, (laughs) like, like it was like, it was like the very end of, um, of like flash based casual games, right? Like that was like those were sort of tailing off and, and the console industry was sort of didn't know what it was doing. It couldn't quite figure out what the next big move was and mobile just didn't exist yet in the united states and and so um it meant that what we would we weren't a game development shop yeah we were a game design shop and that is insane um (laughs) because what we would do is we would just we would pick up um technologies or ideas that would fall off the back of different trucks and we would hold it up and we'd say like (laughs) <laughs> what what does this mean for play like what you know, okay, so you know, what is you know, so cell site sector location, like that means you know that you're within like three blocks of this tower, like like what kind of a game would you build yeah. for that? Which is totally different when in two thousand and six, maybe I think we got we got in the States our first phones that had a GPS chip in them. There was only one, it was a boost mobile this is just a terrible handset. And we had to, we had to, you know, we were like getting J2ME. It was, <laughs> oh God, it was, it was so, it was so difficult. And so awful. It was, it was so difficult just to get the handsets because the idea that like, you know, we needed like 20, you know, for testing the idea that there would be 20 handsets in lower Manhattan, you know, that, that, that people would buy that had GPS ships. Like we had to, we had, we would have to wait a week for new shipments. It was like, it was just so we would just, every new thing that happened yeah. we'd be like what could you do with that what could you do with that what could you do with that and the reason that that's insane from a business perspective is is that the efficiencies in that are exactly zero right yeah. you, you it's like it's like, <laughs> it's like it's like it's like basically you work really really hard to solve all of these problems technology problems design pattern problems all the problems of making essentially the first game where you're running through the streets tracking your location yeah Um, and then, and then we're like, now let's, now let's do a game about synchronous watching with TV and we, you know, (laughs) start again, (laughs) we just, just throw (laughs) it, throw it all out. Right. Because there was no business to build on there. So we were like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? So the success of area code in retrospect is that we just, we would just arrive everything that arrived, we met it and towards the, towards the end of it. Um, uh, the things that arrived started to scale, and mm. the, the two things that arrived uh, five years into our uh, into our, our project, like like after five years of really kind of just like wow, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Five years in, uh, iOS arrived, and we were like, oh, we'll make an iOS game, and and then and then Facebook games started to happen. Just really just just started to happen, and we we built one that was insanely successful by early Facebook standards mm. like like we're basically everybody that we knew on Facebook was playing this game it's called parking wars it was a game about parking your car right? <laughs> it was but it was brilliant like it, it came it came out of Frank's head it, it was it was um, it's actually one of the it's actually one of the the most beautiful games that we made there um, and and one of the most successful. But the but so the the sort of accidental uh, success of Eric is is that the because we met everything when it was new when two new things had unimaginable scale or mm. unprecedented scale that was that that they were that they were unlocking we became experts uh, at launching into those unknown spaces and so that was uh, that was uh at that moment in 2011 that was very valuable to a lot of different companies who hadn't been trying to get into those new spaces because they're game development shops what they're trying to do is just optimize for what they know yeah you know? are so, you tapped yeah. into
0: the gaming space right now
1: not not certainly not in uh as an industry okay um, uh well I, i'm just curious yeah, what
0: yeah. Your, what your thoughts on basically the new technologies right you yeah know, people yeah. seem to be bullish about vr yeah what do you think
1: I think that there will be some great games in VR. I haven't seen one yet. Um, I think that um, broadly speaking, everything that I'm seeing in VR games is basically done by people who made console games and where their essential Mm -hmm. um, mode is thinking in console games. If you think about how long it took cinema to stop just putting people on a stage and filming it, you know, to realize that you could cut, you know, right? Like, I mean, really, it really, it, yeah. it took, it took, it took a long time. Right. And then when, and then when they did the first cuts, you, know, people were like, wait a minute, like, I don't even understand like, yeah. what the fuck Like, I was looking at a train and now I'm looking at a person. Can you put some text right? in yeah, between like, there? You know, and, and that moment hasn't happened yet. No. Which is which is fine. It's it's very early, and you know, uh, but but that 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 person or that company, I don't think has has emerged yet. And I don't I don't instinctively, and from my experience, I don't think that that person is going to come from one okay. of the big AAA studios okay. um, because they're going to have to be thinking in a different way. You know, they, 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 they just, they, they, there's no, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything to be gained in looking at VR as a wraparound console, right? Well, when you, yeah, yeah. I mean, you just think about
0: how quickly the tech, the technology outpaces the education, right? So, you know, I went to NYU and I was like in the English program. So you're doing all this creative writing, not at any point was there a course offered on how to write for binge TV? Right. Like, and now right. it's like a right. whole industry. Right. right, right, right. Exactly. And I, exactly. I don't even yeah. know if any film school has something like that right, right. now. Right. And right. so how do you write a
1: narrative for VR? Right. Like, yeah. I, I mean, well, well also, you know, games aren't narrative vehicles in general, right? I mean, they're, they're, I, there's a whole, it's a whole very nerdy <laughs> set of ideas around games and narratology, which we're not going to get into it but um uh but um what um i if i if i think about it actually having had a minute to reflect on it i can't remember the name of it but somebody did a game where you it this was just it was just some independent developer it was a game where it's for multiple players and one person is trying to defuse a bomb and they're oh, okay. and they're looking at that in VR and they're trying to do that in VR. And everybody else has the plans and they're trying to communicate to the person who is trapped in a helmet, basically, right? Uh, and so the you know, the game keep talking and nobody the, explodes uh that's one of them no that's a different one actually that's a new one um, okay. uh, but but uh yeah that's that's actually a, i think a, a modern instantiation of uh of something that was about three three years ago okay and, and it was very it was very raw it was very rough but but it was like it was like right like maybe what the the materiality of the medium of vr should include the fact that you're wearing a fucking helmet, right? Like, (laughs) like, you know, and you're in a room with other people, right? Like, like maybe that's not like, like maybe that's not something to write off. Like, like maybe that is, maybe that is like, you know, one of the essential aspects to, to, to play with, right? Mm. You know, the Mm -hmm. fact that you can see things that other people can't see and they can see things that you can't see, right? Like maybe, you know, um, one of, uh, one of, um, the, uh, research assistants at uh, at the Media Lab uh, is uh, uh, Greg Bornstein, who's now uh, who's now a proper game developer uh, at Riot, and he did some early experiments around. He did a game called Case and Molly that was like the very first. It was like very early Oculus, okay. and it was like it was like one person with an Oculus, one person with a mobile phone out in the world, and they have a they have an audio signal between them, but the the person in the rift is can get some access to some information about the streets and vice versa. Uh, and they're basically trying to negotiate the fact that they are separated, oh, uh, you know, okay. which is a, you know, it's partly, uh, it, it's not partly, it is an explicit reference to, uh, um, uh, William Gibson's early, uh, Neuromancer in which case and Molly, you know, you know, have in which, in which Gibson was very, interested in this idea that when you were in cyberspace, you weren't somewhere else. Right? right. And, and, and that a lot of things would be happening there and that there would be some interplay between them. They're not the same thing. Um, and the fact that they are so different is maybe part of what makes it so interesting, mm-hmm. Right. you know? And so, so I think there's, um, th- I mean, that's just one example of like the ways to think about VR, And play uh in a um in a way that's not porting um conventional modes of interaction yeah Yeah. exactly
0: because then you know you you spend all this time thinking about games thinking about new technology thinking about the future and then an acquisition happens yeah and then you somehow end up at the media lab yeah right yeah and so how did that what transpired to make that transition happen yeah and then how did being at the media lab affect how you think about building
1: products yeah it's, yeah that's a good question so i mean so i mean the the answer to how uh, the transition to the media lab happened is is super dull uh which is that they 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 asked me to apply <laughs> and i applied and then they asked me to come and i came um uh I it, it I wasn't I wasn't looking for it but also um I I knew some of the people who were there I was I was close with Neri Oxman um uh, who runs the material ecology group and um and so that was sort of informed my sense of what the media lab mm-hmm. might be and they had a sense of me in part through uh through the relationships that I had and um uh but it was an interesting you know it was really interesting because then i arrived and you know they're very happy that some you know there's a new faculty <laughs> member who's very different you know there's, there's this uh, you know i was there for 4 years and and one of the one of the most interesting things about hiring new faculty at the media lab is like the the primary criterion is is that they're a misfit right <laughs> and it's like we're we're looking for um misfits who are thinking about how to ensure the heritability of uh CRISPR engineering um, <laughs> right right like because that's not a discipline that's a person right <laughs> and and that's actually what the media lab is looking to hire they're, they're looking to hire disciplines that don't exist yet that are hiding inside the minds of a person mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you know um and but so the problem is how do you Like, what is the, what is the call? How do you scout and how do you even establish like what, like what, what anti-discipline are you, (laughs) like, where does it go? And so, and so like the, the best way to describe the way the searches go, it's when I finally, I didn't understand how I got there until we went to get other people, uh, which is that you're basically, you, you, you know, you kind of map out the spaces of, of where all those 30 people are. And then you just look for somebody who is equidistant from all of them. Oh, right, wild. Right. Like, okay. you know right like like you know it's like if they're if they're too close to this one we have one of those yeah. Right. you know and so um and so i think for for the media lab they they were really looking to try to figure out games and play um and that's what i had been doing with area code mm-hmm. for uh for seven years um but it's also true that when i got there they were like everybody was like i got there i got there in 2013 and everybody was like we are so excited for you to make keep making location-based games you know and urban whatever and i was like but that's that's not research that's just that's just that's just going to be an industry like that like (laughs) it was it like i didn't know that that's what we were we were doing in 2004 but it was research yeah 10 years ago yeah right and like the fact that it's new to you doesn't mean that it's new, right? Like, and, and if I was interested in scaling that again, I wouldn't try to do that there. And so for me, I came to the Media Lab to figure out, you know, they brought me there because I was, you know, somehow orthogonal to, you know, like, you know, the 30 different planes <laughs> that are represented there. Um, but I went there to figure out what was similarly orthogonal to everything I already knew and did. Um, so, um, I did some, uh, some game work and, and brought in, uh, brought in some, some pretty brilliant, uh, games folks. And, uh, we got, we got some, we got some interesting work done, uh, on games. Um, but, um, I would say within, within two years, you know, I had become just, totally interested in uh in, in microbiology <laughs> and and that's what the next two years really looked like okay. uh, was um was uh was really um sort of revisiting the 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 ideas that were underneath area code mm-hmm. for me um but not how would you express those ideas in terms of play but how would you express those ideas in terms of biology Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't really say what, you know, it's, it's not, a, there's no, there's no straight path. I, I, you know, I could, I could construct a clever story, right, uh, yeah. but, but, uh, but it was, it was instinct. And the instinct was, f- was for the idea that cities are not as simple as, um, hardware and a bunch of users. Um, that's just not. That's not what they are. And when we started Area Code, the what was underneath it was we're gonna build software for cities, right? Mm, like that's how yeah. we talked about it in 2004. I think now that's a that's a powerfully banal idea, right? Like you know, <laughs> like like like, it's like a meaningfully banal thing to assert. But in 2004, we were like, what is software for cities? Like, what would it mean to change your sense of the city? Like, and and we were reading. We weren't reading. We had we had well read uh, all the work from the situationists in the 50s and 60s. Um, uh, you know, people, um, artists, primarily philosophers, um, who were looking for strategies to um, to. To get you to reimagine yeah. the cities that you were in, you know, we 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 didn't go into it to do Facebook games or or any Parking of that. wars, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were, we found something very interesting in that. But but yeah. when we when we started, it was because cities felt like something like like that's a, at the time in 2004. It was like, well, that's something that technology is going to affect in ten different ways. It's going to affect logistics. It's going to affect traffic. It's going to affect policing how will it affect play right Mm -hmm. and so when i got to the media lab um uh what i i was sort of i was i was sort of digging underneath the work that i that we had done and trying to figure out what was important to me about it um like if i if i were to reboot all these things and they didn't generate location-based games what would they generate Mm -hmm. and it turned out that they generated um some investigations into the notion of cities as biological superorganisms okay um, that like you know to 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 understand that um you know if you if you step all the way back and you just look it's like you know you look at termites you know they make mounds that look like this and you look at ants and they make colonies that look like this and you look at humans and they make these weird superstructures that live like this. And you <laughs> why? Know, why, why, you know, like, like, what is it about, um, our, you know, essential trajectory yeah. that produces these things, you know, across, you know, many different cultures across long, long swaths of history. Like, like what is it? And there's super interesting work by, um, Jeffrey West at the Santa Fe Institute, hmm. um, uh, really studying, um, cities has a complexity problem, mm-hmm. um, uh, and really, really beautiful work about how they scale and so on. But, um, through a series of very weird tangents, which is what the media lab is, is good at. Um, uh, what I became interested in was, um, I had, I had a, I had a, 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 a a hobbyist's interest for a long time in uh in in the gut biome okay. which is which is now weirdly popular right like it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like now everybody talks about their gut biome but i i was you know like i talked about poop long before poop was like a, Congrats, like a man, an emoji yeah. right, like, <laughs> right. Uh, um and um and and the role of your gut in terms of i i'm not so interested in it in terms of like your health and well-being although i do care and i have a two-year-old so now i think about (laughs) it a lot i think about poop a lot Um, again Um, but um but what i'm interested in is just how it reshapes your notion of the world to know that um you know you are a collective organism right Mm -hmm. like you know that that you know there's all kinds of ways to represent this and there's always you know it depends how you measure things but but one way or another the majority of the dna in you doesn't it's it's not it's not you it's not from your parents you know and much of it we literally don't even have a name for it right like 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 where you know there are there are species um that live inside us Uh, Without them, we're dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, Without us, they'd have to find somewhere else to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And that should change what we think of when we think of an individual. Hmm. And I'd been thinking about that a lot. And this is all a very roundabout way. The only way I know it's a roundabout (laughs) way to get to the question of if I have a gut biome that's distinct from your gut biome, does New York City have a gut biome that's different than the gut biome of Tokyo? Or Lagos mm-hmm. or, or you know, wherever. Um, uh, and if those gut biomes are different, w- uh, why are they different? And what is it, what does it do and what does it mean? Um, and in that the gut biome that we have, it, you know, comes through the exchange of material, uh, living material with the environment. Hmm. Um, you know, what does it mean to live in one city or another? It, you know, you are effectively in exchange with that city. This is why, it's why you get sick when you travel, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's why you eat the food that, you know, in some city that you've never been to, you eat the food that everybody else there can eat with no problem. And and it causes a problem. It's because, it's because you are literally carrying your country, your city of origin with you. And, uh, and it's, it's incompatible, lightly incompatible with, the city that you're in right and so and,
0: seemingly yeah. this can this project yeah. could have expanded you know like you are the hub maybe in the media lab or yep. the, your cohort yep. of people and yep. you're like well i'm just going to go everywhere in the world now yep. and i'm going to do tangible scientific research yep. but instead you're like i'm going to go back to new york where
1: i'm from and i'm going to work yeah. at a cultural institute <laughs> i did yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i i you know i think it, it's exactly the point like we uh i for that project which was around like the you know figuring out a discipline that is now a couple of years later called urban metagenomics, you know, I amassed this amazing group of collaborators and some of them were like very, very hardcore biologists, <laughs> okay. like really, you know, t- the top in their field. And some of them, uh, were like amazing artists like Chris Wobkin. Um, and we weren't trying to write a paper, you know, like we were trying to effectively publish a poem, you know, like the, we, what I was trying to communicate wasn't data, Mm. it was an idea. Mm. Um Mm -hmm. and that um that is a very and that's and that's basically that's what that's what culture does, right? Like, you know, basically um it 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 transmits ideas um and um rather than information. Okay. And and you know in that distinction um it's it's not like they're in opposition, but culture is distinct from information mm-hmm. um and the media lab is really really good at information um and, and uh i had to figure out the right environment um for me uh in terms of how to be expressive in terms of culture okay um, and the at the media lab um the way they they would always uh, we, we would always draw this diagram, you know, this sort of four quadrant uh, of you know, there's there's artists and there's designers and there's scientists and there's engineers. And I don't know if it was ever explicitly stated, but roughly, if you brought less than three of those to the table as an individual, you weren't you're not that interesting to the media lab, right? Like I I'm overstating it, <laughs> okay. maybe even misstating it, but um, but but that model of artists designers scientists and engineers and it took me a while to understand that my um what i what i was doing for myself and for the media lab was basically representing the artist and design piece of that half of that and bringing artist art and design i wasn't the only one but i was bringing art and design to a scientific and engineering yeah. Environment. It's not the Massachusetts Institute of Culture. It's you know, right? Like it's it's a, you know, it's like fundamentally <laughs> right. It's technology, um, uh, but to bring art and design uh, into that, uh, you know, with the deliberate, uh, goal of uh, finding the finding finding how to blur those boundaries or eliminate mm-hmm. those boundaries. Um, I understand my role here at the Shed, and I and I say it explicitly is basically bringing the science and engineering back um, you know this is essentially uh an art it's it's a it's a cultural environment mm-hmm. um it's it's not really design it's art um but uh figuring out how science and engineering play a meaningful role yeah. uh and have meaningful forms of expression uh, uh within within culture uh is it's like it's 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 basically the inverse of what my job was <laughs> uh, at the Media Lab. Um, uh, it's, it's nice to be home in new york of course Um, yeah uh, and also um uh the opportunity this is the first cultural center the shed the shed is the first cultural center to be uh, at scale to be built in new york city since lincoln center okay wow which is when? um, 60s okay i guess it's embarrassing i don't know but but uh, roughly yeah like it's it's at least 50 years ago okay um and uh and so the opportunity to literally be part of that process of building the institution yeah. um, is too good to pass up. I, I you know, I'm really, uh, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm good at the beginnings of stuff, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, um, uh, and this is the beginning, you know, yeah. this is an instant. The building is still under construction. Um, so, So, um, so part of it is, is that it's the opportunity to just, to just, it's the, it's, it's the, it's a, it's a new cultural institution for New York city. You'd you'd be crazy to pass that up, but also part of it was the opportunity to work with Alex the artistic director who prior to this had been the artistic director of the armory, um, and had done, um, a bunch of shows there that, on paper are obviously bad ideas okay. uh and then you would go and and they were just they were they were unbelievable shows you know like and, and, and does that mean curator yeah. effectively yeah yes okay. yeah um yeah he's a yeah in we are yeah, for performance you would call it you they call it programming which means something different here than oh, okay elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. i just want yeah, to know what yeah. the actual yeah, yeah, yeah. job yeah is. we have producers and programmers but they don't do what you think they do yeah, yeah. yeah. um I, I didn't even realize that he was sort of like the secret Hmm. uh uh brain behind yeah. some of my favorite things you know i i you know it was years ago it was, it was actually four years ago uh uh just recently um a, a show that was the filmmaker adam curtis uh versus massive attack uh, playing live an obviously terrible terrible idea um and it was it was so beautiful it was it was so extraordinary and it was um It was legitimately risky, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it is—it's just so rare that, I mean, these days it's just so rare that anybody takes an authentic risk of any kind. Um, But I think it's—it's—it's maybe even especially true in culture. You know, I think you know, especially you know, like large-scale cultural institutions are weirdly Mm risk-averse to my mind uh, these days. And so the opportunity to work with Alex and the opportunity to work at the very beginning mm-hmm. of this thing, the building is designed, uh, by Diller, Scafidio and Renfro, Liz Diller, uh, and also the Rockwell group. Um, Liz Diller, uh, is an old friend and, uh, uh, and, and one of my heroes. Um, she's the architect who did the High Line, among oh, other cool. things, right? And okay. it's, it, and the shed is right on the High Line and, you know, they. She came up with the idea of a building that moves. Um, yeah. You know, and um, it's one thing to to come up with that idea and kind of like sketch it and whatever. And <laughs> but like, uh, you know, like they're actually, we're you know, like we're building it. Like we we moved it uh, uh, about a month ago for the first time, and nobody nobody got killed. Eight million, <laughs> eight million pounds moved at about twelve miles an hour, uh, and uh, and nobody died. It's amazing. It yeah, is, yeah.
0: It kind of looks like. Like a concept car that actually made it to production. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah
1: yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's well said. I, I knew <laughs> and and also uh I took a tour recently uh um uh with with some pretty hardcore folks uh from NASA, some oh, some cool. Voyager engineers, and we were sitting up top looking at the motors that move the building. And uh and and one of them said, like, you know, this is this is ambitious. <laughs> and it's like it's like if you're the systems integrator on the Voyager yeah. and, and you're looking at a building and you and you call it ambitious, that's an ambitious building. Yeah, right? It's so it's cool. an ambitious building um, and it is tabula rasa. Yeah. Um, and it also has this very weird quality. I didn't realize how strange it was until I started working here about four months ago, which is that it's a it's an exhibition space of. Uh, five stories three enormous galleries Mm -hmm. you know sort of like white box galleries really large Um, and then a very large performance space uh, and then two small theaters Um, and alex when i first came in said you have to understand this is very unusual it's basically never done that you have a combination large scale performance space and exhibition space and i sort of didn't take it seriously because it just sounded but if you think about it yeah, you you haven't been in a place like that. Like, you're not going to go see opera at MoMA. Right. You're not going to go see an exhibition at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Right. Um, those things are they're never going to happen. They couldn't happen even if they wanted them to happen <laughs> because they are built around doing the thing that they do. So it took me a while to realize that it's um, that it's that it really is unusual. Then I had to understand why you would even want that. Um And there's a couple different answers, but the most valuable answer I think is mm-hmm. it's what allows us to you don't start with a format mm-hmm. you start with an artist or hmm. you start with an idea hmm. and then you figure out like what does that become, and that uh that will produce new forms um and like and i'm I'm down for that like like i think I think that is like that is so necessary. So important um, and so fucking difficult because yeah. that's the third part of it is that there's also a reason that nobody <laughs> has totally, built yeah. performance spaces with exhibition spaces. There's a spaces. reason no one made yeah. moving buildings. <laughs> right. well, well, putting aside the fact that the building moves, it's also um, like the best way to make it real, like how few efficiencies you get in having an exhibition space with the performance space is yeah. Think about what it's like to get a ticket to go see uh the you know rauschenberg show at the moma yep. um and trying to get a ticket to go see hamilton okay now think about one institution that has to accommodate both of those and what what does the ticketing software look oh like God. right like like just, <laughs> like just always like, like just that like, like and and that's that's like this big yeah, right? you know and like um so there's a reason the the the, the analogy i always give is like you know, helicopters float in the air and planes float in the air, but nobody is like, "Wow, it'd be a better plane if it also had huge rotors <laughs> on the top." Or, you know, it's like, no, they're di- they're they're different. They're different for a reason. And they operate differently for a reason. But our bet is that it's worth the 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 struggle of uh of 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 making. Um, it's not just that the building moves. It's not just that the building is weird. It's that the notion of the institution. Yeah, is weird it's like it's weirder than anybody knows can uh, you put yeah. the the risks you want to take in tangible terms yeah yeah um um there's some yeah some might some uh, i i wish i could tell you about the risks that we're going to take in the programming which yeah. I, which i, I it's really two can't years out do. now right it's a year and a half year and a half yeah. there's going to be a show um that is going to be Um, it's going to be extraordinary. We might have Um, to do round two at that point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, It's a show where I can't imagine how it's actually, it's like if you're, if you're setting something up and you really, you cannot imagine what it is actually going to be at the end, that's exciting. And like that, like that's risky. And this is, it's very, it's, it's very beautiful, risky work with uh, an artist um, that I can't reveal yet. But um, we are we're planting a flag um, with the first show that says um, this is this is the 21st century Um, and it's not um, like, you know, it's uh, uh, it's not it's not neutral, you know, it's not uh, it it might not be pretty, um, but it's going to be important and loud and uh and and rich um so there's a lot of risks in the programming some of it is riskier than others um but part of my role is um there's a couple different parts of it one of them that's very important to me is to start commissioning scientists to do work in the museum Um, and like even the idea of commissioning a scientist is stupid (laughs) um uh, and probably destined to failure um but maybe not um uh but um figuring out how so so i'm working with a scientist i also can't reveal but one of my favorite living scientists um to to bring something to life uh in 2019 that um uh what we're aiming for in that is is that this is a scientist who sees the world differently than you and I do mm-hmm. because of their work and everything that they've done up until now is trying to describe that world in academic papers and instead we're going to bring it to life. Um, and that feels pretty risky to me. Um, uh, but then putting curatorial stuff aside, um, one of the things that we're going to do is eliminate um, uh, any form of paper tickets, right? It's basically uh, your your ticket's going to be your phone. Oh, um, cool. Okay. And uh, by 2019, that's 98%. 98% of the United States will have smartphones. You know, even Obama phones are smartphones. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't be able to buy a non-smartphone in 2019. Um, uh, and so that's going to be your ticket. And um, it... Uh, it allows so there's a bunch of things that happen with that and where and they're they're basically in most ways just plain better than (laughs) uh, you know waiting on a long line and there's a window and like you know you've been to times square you see like people with umbrellas in the snow waiting for and it's just like you know what it's 2019 and we say fuck that (laughs) and we have no legacy infrastructure like we, we have no incentives yeah to do any of that. So it's your phone. But now here's what's interesting. If all those people aren't online to to buy their tickets or to pick up their tickets, where are they? And so now we have to think about that. And that's a problem that no institution has ever had before. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, you know, uh is if you don't have everybody who is waiting to see the show standing in a line What are they doing? And we have some we have some thoughts about it. You know, we I I only noticed it when I was looking at the flow numbers, and I was like, I was like, whoa, two hundred people an hour. What are we going to do with the two hundred people who are waiting? Like, we don't have it. So, so, so we're going to be doing some things that it it doesn't feel like a big idea to just have your ticket on your phone, but it turns out you're changing the entire experience of guests and it, it actually changes how we program the spaces. Um, uh, so like you tweak that, uh, and all of these sort of a priori that you have for cultural institutions go out the window with it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one of the big risky initiatives. And then the other, uh, that I could talk about is, um, when I first got here four months ago, the architects reviewed with me a bulkhead, on the um on the 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 northeast corner with cables that were going to come out and a broadcast truck would come up so it has a satellite dish on the top and the, and pbs or cnn or whatever they would be able to live televise the events mm-hmm. that we do in the shed like they do sometimes with the met or whatever and i just you know i looked around and i was like i was like guys the likelihood that in 2019 that truck is going to show up is basically zero, right? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's not, it's not absolute zero, but it's very low yeah. that those trucks are going to show up to broadcast a live signal from cables off of a satellite to television sets that people are sitting at who can't wait to see this. Thing. I like, yeah, I, I mean, while everyone yeah. is, could watch it from their phone
0: on their like ticket device right, now, right, right,
1: yeah. right. And so, and so, and so we so we killed it. Uh, cool. One of the reasons is because we the uh, the architecture team had the insight to put in um, an unprecedented amount of bandwidth for a cultural institution. Um, it's it's uh, it's the first time I've ever been part of any kind of architectural something where you, you look at it and you're like, yeah, that'll that'll probably work for the next fifty years. Like that's probably enough, mm-hmm. you know, like. Uh, You know where where I I I actually can't figure out how to how to max it out like like (laughs) like like you know like like you know we could you know I guess we could mine Bitcoin I I don't don't even know like I I don't even know what we can do with it all but but um but what we can do with that bandwidth is basically do digital broadcasts Mm -hmm. and that um the idea of doing live digital broadcasts not incidentally but like as the core Ethos Mm -hmm. of what we do at the shed, where this thing that we're going to do in the first weekend, it's going to be it's going to be enormous. But I don't know, maybe in total over one week, we'll be a you know twenty thousand people will pass through those doors, right? And it just doesn't sit right, you know. It just doesn't like that. Just doesn't. It just doesn't work for me. Um, And then you have you know whatever it is now, three or four billion dollars, three or four billion. Uh, addressable broadband connections out there in the world um, that we should you know we should be thinking about it less of a building and more like a beacon you Mm -hmm. know like this thing that emits a a live synchronizing signal to everybody around the world I don't want to I don't want to put it up on YouTube I don't want to put it up on (laughs) you know it's like it's not about the archive of it it's about that at 7 o'clock on Thursday this thing is going to happen, you know, and I'm sorry if that's 7 a.m. in Tokyo and, you know, like, like, whatever, like wake up early because yeah. it's, we, we're going to have to make it worth your while, right? You yeah. know, like, like we do for the World Cup, right? Like, yep. like you know, like I want, you know, th- because what is valuable isn't just the performance and the event. What's valuable is that synchronizing signal. Yeah. And that to come back to the very beginning of our conversation, that I think is the the most important thing that cultural institutions can do now is to basically provide synchronizing signals is basically to say like, you know, right now, like we're going to gather together and we're all going to be on the same fucking page mm. for like two, for the next two hours, mm-hmm. we're on the same page. Like for the next two hours, our attention is on this thing, but I'm here with you. Right. Yeah. Like, and to, and, and to be able to provide That feeling of being uh, with people at the same time with the same um, attention—it's very, very powerful. I think it's generally unexploited in technology in general, and it's definitely underexploited in culture. Yeah, Um, you know, if you look at what technologies do and have done, is they basically delaminate whatever it is that we like from its mode of transmission or expression, whatever. And if we didn't, if we didn't love that so much, it wouldn't have worked. Right. But it turns out we don't want to buy albums and we don't want to, you know, like like, like we want, we want the stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. It's true. We do. But also we want to, we want to feel what it's like to be connected to in a in a in a kind of limbic way like in a like in a in a in a in a synchronized way and um so so we're you know it's that's the it's the premise of theater it's one of the the core ideas of theater but the idea that we will be a will be producing very very high-end uh live cultural events for the internet constantly um, cool. feels like well yeah that's that's probably what you would do in the 21st century but i don't know because nobody's ever done you know who knows no one's I mean, doing who, it. who knows right so we could talk about yeah. this infinitely yeah, yeah, about yeah, attention so, and yeah.
0: like the separation of yeah. mind and body yep. in our work yep um but you know we've been going for like almost an hour now okay, and yep. so i just kind of wanted to wrap up with one yep. question about you in yep. particular yeah um You've done so many interesting and seemingly different but mm-hmm. connected things. Mm-hmm. 10 years from now, mm-hmm. uh what
1: are you working toward? To <laughs> make make Kevin better. I hope 10 years from now I'm actually still here at the shed. Um and that you know there were there were some things I liked okay about advertising when I worked in advertising for eight years. There were a bunch of things I hated about it. <laughs> But there was one thing that I really loved and I was so afraid to leave advertising because I loved this thing so much. And this thing was I had no idea what I was going to do tomorrow, right? Like, you know, you know, you'd be working on like some breakfast cereal account. This is like a real thing that happened. You know, it's like you're working on breakfast cereal and you're like there until eight o'clock at night because advertising is hard. And – and then you come in the next day and they're like, no, you know what? Actually, you're on the F twenty two fighter bomber account. <laughs> and and it was like it was like, wow, like now I have to learn everything about yeah. fighter bombers and how people in Congress spy them. You know? Um and and I thought when I left advertising, I was gonna give up on living a life in which every day I've gotta figure out something new that we've never figured out before. And somehow that uh, I, I think the, the the projects and positions and um, uh, even types of companies that uh, I've uh, uh, been part of making, um, they all have that in common. Mm. And I think, I, like, I sort of don't care what I'm doing in ten years, as long as I, as long as I get to, you know, exercise that muscle. I, I think at a certain point I had to abandon the notion that I would ever have legitimate domain expertise in almost anything really. (laughs) Um, but that my, but, uh, but if I could figure out how to work effectively, uh, and, and with real capabilities, uh, between everything as everything is arriving all at once, um, that, that turns out to be valuable in the world which was surprising to me as an adult um uh it turns out to be valuable in the world and also it's like you know i feel like as long as you're doing something for the first time you're still young right Mm -hmm. and so like i just in 10 years i just want to feel young right so that's 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 my long i think we should just close it right there all right (laughs) right. (laughs) thanks man yeah (laughs)
0: All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, the video and transcript are at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, please subscribe and review the show. All right. See you next week.